What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, a lot's happened since the last time I recorded. Uh, I had a friend from out of town come in as a guest for the podcast. And uh, it was just as weird as I thought it was going to be. Um, he was very friendly and nice, but he had to sit there for a solid hour while I read pretty much the most boring thing you're ever going to read. Uh but he was a trooper. He didn't text his wife. He didn't uh, find other things to do. He just sat there uh, being my sound man. And he was gracious and kind. Uh, I tried to hug him on the way out to his car, and he rejected that hug. That never happened. But, so, it was nice to have a uh, sidekick. Uh, since then, it's been raining, which has been frustrating. And my basement's flooded again, and it's real, real humid down here. So, I've enjoyed spending the weekend wet dry vacuuming that until the gutter people come and put new gutters on the house and hopefully this stops happening. I've let the cats down in the basement, which I think has probably been a big mistake. Uh, they just crawl around screaming all the time, and so that's been a lot of fun, especially when you're trying to record a podcast. Uh, last night I went to my white trash party with the people I grew up with, and... It was at a person's house, and everyone seemed pretty uh, mean-looking, and they were mostly unfriendly. They're all really into Harleys, and uh, it was a weird night. And so I sort of floated around talking with people. I actually talked to a young couple there that weren't people I grew up with or anything. They were just kind of stragglers. And they openly admitted that they argue a lot in their relationship, and I said, uh, well, that's normal in a relationship to argue, and they said, we get pretty physical, though, and I said, you mean like hitting, and they said, yes, the both of them get physical and hit, I said, uh, how does that work out, and the boyfriend said, well, I've been to jail a few times because of domestic reports being called in on the two of them because they're throwing stuff and screaming at each other and I said oh and I looked at the girl and I said have you and she said yes so I didn't know what to say uh, the only thing I had off the top of my head is uh, well at least it's consensual <laughs> at least the two of you are agreeing to whatever the heck it is you call a relationship uh, I got food poisoning from the dip I got real hungry towards the end. There was no food, but there was this uh, sort of bean dip that somebody had left there with chips. So I 
started scooping it up. I took a bite. And my hungry stomach said, keep going, buddy. And I just started eating and eating and eating. And it really hit the spot at the time. But um, as the night went on, I was burping that stuff up and burping it and burping it and realized this isn't good. So went home and at about four in the morning, uh, I threw up all over my kitchen sink. And that is disgusting. And finally felt better. Brushed teeth, went back to bed, woke up this morning feeling fine, started cleaning and doing other things and sucking up water with the wet dry vac. And then when I went upstairs to shower, I looked in the mirror and saw that my whole face looks insane because of all the blood vessels that broke in it from throwing up. And then today I met up with a uh, old coworker and uh, had some dinner with my horrible, disgusting face. And I could see that person could not hold it together the entire time that uh, I would look at him and make some kind of statement. So that's been my weekend, and I hope yours was just as good. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you and maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds, the cars outside the window, the creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Do you hear that? It's my cat. One of two cats. They're very old. And I don't know exactly what's going on, but whenever they get upset, they do not stop screaming at me. Letting them down to the basement's been a new experience for them. And this is what I deal with when they have a new experience. If you don't like it down here, go. What did we learn in the last episode? We learned almost nothing. Uh, As my friend put it, Ernest is not doing a good job swaying anyone's opinions. It's been nine chapters of him talking at people about his beliefs, and none of those people ever seem to really care. Uh, There's nothing to report in the previous chapter. It's just him talking some more, and uh, everyone just sort of being upset. And so... Really, really, really hoping that the next chapter is going to have anything besides Ernest talking. 
I'd like to learn a little bit about the other characters. I'd like to see something happen in the story that doesn't just involve Ernest talking at people. I just want something else. And so we start with chapter 10, which actually has a name that isn't uh, confusing to pronounce. It's just called the Vortex. That's right. <laughs> so here we begin with chapter 10. The Vortex. And I might have to kick these cats out. It's been a big mistake letting them down here. There we go. I locked them upstairs. Following the thunderclaps upon the businessmen's dinner occurred event after event of terrifying moment. And I, little I, who had lived so placidly all my days in the quiet university town, found myself... <clears throat> and my personal affairs drawn into the vortex of the great world affairs. Whether it was my love for Ernest or the clear sight he had given me of the society in which I lived, that made me a revolutionist. I know not, but a revolutionist I became, and I was plunged into a whirl of happenings that would have been inconceivable three short months before. The crisis in my own fortunes, came simultaneously with great crises in society. First of all, father was discharged from the university. Oh, he was not technically discharged. His resignation was demanded. That was all. This in itself did not amount to much. Father, in fact, was delighted. He was especially delighted because his discharge had been precipitated by the publication of his book, Economics and Education. It clinched his argument, he contended. What better evidence could be advanced to prove that education was dominated by the capitalist class? But this proof never got anywhere. Nobody knew he had been forced to resign from the university. He was a, so eminent a scientist that such an announcement, coupled with the reason for his enforced resignation, would have created somewhat of a fervor all over the world. The newspapers showered him with praise and honor, and commended him for having given up the drudgery of the lecture room in order to devote his whole time to scientific research. At first, Father laughed, and, and then became angry. Tonic angry. What does that mean? Like an uh, angry drunk? Then came the suppression of his book. This suppression was performed secretly. So secretly that at first... We could not comprehend. The publication of the book had immediately caused a bit of excitement in the country. Father had been politely abused in the capitalist press, the tone of the abuse being to the effect that it was a pity so great a scientist should leave his field and invade the realm of sociology, about which he knew nothing, and wherein he had promptly become lost. This lasted for a week, while Father chuckled and said the book had touched a sore spot on capitalism, and then abruptly, abruptly <laughs> the newspapers and the critical magazines ceased saying anything about the book at all. Also, and with equal suddenness, the book disappeared from the market. Not a copy was obtainable from any bookseller. Father wrote to the publishers and was informed that the plates had been accidentally injured. 
An unsatisfactory correspondence followed. Driven finally to an unequivocal stand, the publishers stated that they could not see their way to putting the book into type again, but that they were quite willing to relinquish their rights in it. And you won't find another publishing house in the country to touch it, uh, Ernest said. If I were you, I'd hunt cover right now. You've merely got a foretaste of the Iron Heel. But Father was nothing if not a scientist. He never believed in jumping to conclusions. A laboratory experiment was no experiment if they were not carried through in all of its details. So he patiently went the round of the publishing houses. They gave a multitude of excuses, but not one house would consider the book. When Father became convinced that the book had actually been suppressed, he tried to get the fact into the newspapers. But his communications were ignored. At a political meeting of the socialists, where many reporters were present, Father saw his chance. He arose and related the history of the suppression of the book. He laughed next day when he read the newspapers, and then he grew angry to a degree that eliminated all tonic qualities. The papers made no mention of the book, but they misreported him beautifully. They twisted his words and phrases away from the context and turned his subdued and controlled remarks into a howling, anarchistic speech. It was done artfully. One instance in particular, I remember, he had used the phrase, Social Revolution. The reporter merely dropped out social. Uh, This was sent out all over the country in an Associated Press dispatch. And from all over the country arose a cry of alarm. Father was branded as a nihilist and an anarchist. And in one cartoon, they made cartoons of him. Like, how famous was this guy? That was copied widely. He was portrayed waving a red flag and at the head of a mob of long-haired, wild-eyed men who bore in their hands torches, knives, and dynamite bombs. This book was from the early 1900s, like 1906 or something. Uh, What would a long-haired, wild-eyed man be back then? Uh, Not a hippie. Must be extremely crazy if you have long hair back then. He was assailed terribly in the press and long and abusive editorials for his anarchy, and hints were made of mental breakdown on his part. This behavior on the part of the capitalist press was nothing new. Ernest told us. It was the custom, he said, to send reporters to all the socialist meetings for the express purpose of misreporting and distorting what was said in order to frighten the middle class away from any possible affiliation with the proletariat. And repeatedly, Ernest warned Father to cease fighting and to take cover. The socialist press of the country took up the fight, however, and throughout the reading portion of the working class, it was known that the book had been suppressed. But this knowledge stopped with the working class. Next, the, quote, appeal to reason. A big socialist publishing house arranged with Father to bring out the book. Father was jubilant, but Ernest was alarmed. I tell you, 
We're on the verge of the unknown, he insisted. Big things are happening secretly all around us. We can feel them. We do not know what they are, but they are there. The whole fabric of society is a tremble with them. Don't ask me, I don't know myself. But out of this flux of society, something is about to crystallize. It is crystallizing now. The suppression of the book is a precipitation. How many books have been suppressed? We haven't the least idea. We are in the dark. We have no way of learning. Watch out. Next, for the suppression of the socialist press and the socialist publishing houses. I'm afraid it's coming. We are going to be throttled. Ernest had his hand on the pulse of events even more closely than the rest of the socialists. And within two days, the first blow was struck. The Appeal to Reason was a weekly, and its regular circulation amongst the proletariat was 750,000. Also, it's very frequently got out special editions hmm, from two to five millions. These great editions were paid for and distributed by the small army of voluntary workers who had marshaled around the appeal. The first blow was aimed at these special editions, and it was a crushing one. By an arbitrary ruling of the post office, these editions were decided to be not the regular circulation of the paper, and for that reason were denied admission to the mails, so the post office can actually censor things, according to this. Was that ever true in the past? Maybe it was. Not doubting the author, but I can't imagine the post office now having a say in pretty much it. They'd just be happy to mail something to someone. A week later, the post office department ruled that the paper was seditious and barred it entirely from the mails. This was a fearful blow to the socialist propaganda. The appeal was desperate. It devised a plan of reaching its subscribers through the express companies, but they declined to handle it. This was the end of the appeal, but not quite. It prepared to go on with its book publishing. 20,000 copies of Father's book were in the bindery, and the presses were turning off more. And then, without warning, a mob arose one night, and under a waving American flag, singing patriotic songs, set fire to the great plant of the appeal, and was totally destroyed. Oh, and totally destroyed it. Now, Gerard, Kansas, was a quiet, peaceable town. There had never been any labor troubles there. The appeal paid union wages and, in fact, was the backbone of the town, giving employment to hundreds of men and women. It was not the citizens of Gerard that composed the mob. The mob had risen up out of the earth, apparently, and, to all intents and purposes, its work done. It had gone back into the earth. Ernest saw in the affair the most sinister import. The Black Hundreds are being organized in the United States, he said. This is the beginning. There will be more of it. The Iron Heel is getting bold. The Black Hundreds. And so perished Father's book. We were to see much of the Black Hundreds as the days went by. Week by week, more of the socialist papers were barred from the mails and in a number of instances, the Black Hundreds destroyed the socialist presses. Of course, uh, the newspapers of the land lived up to the reactionary policy of the ruling class. And 
the destroyed socialist press was misrepresented and vilified. While the black hundreds were represented as true patriots and saviors of society, so can, do they call themselves the black hundreds? So convincing was all this misrepresentation that even sincere ministers in the pulpit praised the Black Hundreds while regretting the necessity of violence. History was making fast. The fall elections were soon to occur, and Ernest was nominated by the Socialist Party to run for Congress. His chance for election was most favorable. The streetcar-like oh, strike in San Francisco had been broken, and following upon it, the Teamsters strike had been broken. These two defeats had been very disastrous to organized labor. The whole Waterfront Federation, along with its allies in the structural trades, had backed up the Teamsters, and all had been smashed down ingloriously. It had been a bloody strike. The police had broken countless heads with their riot clubs, and the death list had been augmented by the turning loose of a machine gun on the strikers. Wow. From the barns of the Marsden's special delivery company. So machine guns in the barns. In consequence, the men were sullen and vindictive. They wanted blood and revenge. Beaten upon their chosen field, they were ripe to seek revenge by means of political action. They still maintained their labor organization, and this gave them strength in the political struggle that was on. Ernest's chance for election grew stronger and stronger. Day by day, unions and more unions voted their support to the socialists until even Ernest laughed when the undertaker's assistants and the Chicken pickers fell on the line. <laughs> Labor became mulish. While it packed the socialist meetings with mad enthusiasm, it was impervious to the wiles of the old party politicians. The old party or orators were usually greeted with empty halls, though occasionally they encountered full halls where they were so roughly handled that more than once it was necessary to call out the police reserves. History was making fast. The air was vibrant with things happening and impending. The country was on the verge of hard times, caused by a series of prosperous years wherein the difficulty of disposing abroad of the unconsumed surplus had become increasingly difficult. Industries were working short time. Many great factories were standing idle against the time when the surplus should be gone. The wages were being cut right and left. Also, the great machinist strike had been broken. 200,000 machinists, along with their 500,000 allies in the metalworking trades, had been defeated in as bloody a strike as had ever been marred the United States. Had ever marred the United States. Pitched battles had been fought with the small armies of armed strikebreakers. Put in the field by the employers' associations, the black hundreds appearing in scores of wide, scattered places had destroyed property and, in consequence, a hundred thousand regular soldiers of the United States had been called out to put a frightful end to the whole affair. 
A number of the labor leaders had been executed. Wow. Many others had been sentenced to prison, while thousands of the rank and file of the strikers had been herded into bullpens and abominably treated by the soldiers. The years of prosperity were now to be paid for. All markets were gutted. All markets were falling. And amidst the general crumble of prices, the price of labor crumbled fastest of all. The land was convulsed with industrial dissensions. Labor was striking here, there, and everywhere. And where it was not striking, it was being turned out by the capitalists. The papers were filled with tales of violence and blood. And through it all, the black hundreds played their part. Riot, arson, and wanton destruction of property was their function, and well, they performed it. The whole regular army was in the field, called there by the actions of the black hundreds. All cities and towns were like armed camps, and laborers were shot down like dogs. Out of the vast army of the unemployed, the strikebreakers were recruited. And when the strikebreakers were worsted by the labor unions, the troops always appeared and crushed the unions. Then there was the militia. As yet, it was not necessary to have recourse to the secret militia law, only the regularly organized militia was out, and it was out everywhere. And in this time of terror, the regular army was increased an additional hundred thousand by the government. Never had labor received such an all-around beating. The great captains of industry, the oligarchs, had for the first time thrown their full weight into the breach of the struggling employers' associations had made. These associations were practically middle-class affairs, and now, compelled by hard times and crashing markets, and aided by the great captains of industry, they gave organized labor an awful and decisive defeat. It was an all-powerful alliance, but it was an alliance of the lion and the lamb as the middle class was soon to learn. Labor was bloody and sullen, but crushed. Yet its defeat did not put an end to the hard times. The banks themselves, constituting one of the most important forces of the oligarchy, continued to call in credits. The Wall Street Group turned the stock market into a maelstrom, where the values of all the land crumbled away almost to nothingness. And out of all the rack and ruin rose the form of the nascent oligarchy. Imperturbable, indifferent, and sure. Its serenity and certitude was terrifying. Not only did it use its own vast power, but it used all power of the United States Treasury to carry out its plans. The captains of industry had turned upon the middle class, the employers' associations that had helped the captains of industry to tear and rent labor were now torn and rent by their quondam allies. Amidst the crashing of the middlemen, the small businessmen and manufacturers and trusts stood firm. Nay, the trusts did more than stand firm. They were active. They sowed wind and wind and even more wind, for they knew alone how to recap the whirlwind and make a profit out of it. And such profits, exclamation point, colossal profits, exclamation point, strong enough 
themselves to weather the storm that was largely their own brewing. They turned loose and plundered the wrecks that floated about them. Values were pitifully and inconceivably shrunken, and the trusts added hugely to their holdings, even extending their enterprises into many new fields, and always at the expense of the middle class. Thus the summer of 1912 witnessed a virtual death thrust to the middle class. Even Ernest was astounded at the quickness with which it had been done. He shook his head ominously and looked forward without hope to the fall elections. It's uh, no use, he said. We are beaten. The iron heel is here. I had hoped for a peaceful victory at the ballot box, and I was wrong. Wixen was right. We shall be robbed. Wow, he's actually wrong. And somebody else was right. We shall be robbed of our few remaining liberties. The iron heel will walk upon our faces. Nothing remains without a, but a bloody revolution of the working class. Of course, we will win, but I shudder to think of it. And from then on, Ernest pinned his faith in revolution. In this, he was in advance of his party. His fellow socialists could not agree with him. They still insisted that victory could be gained through the elections. It was not that they were stunned. They were too cool-headed and courageous for that. They were uh, merely incredulous. That was all. Ernest could not get them seriously to fear the coming of the oligarchy. They were stirred by him, but they were too sure of their own strength. There was no room in their theoretical social evolution for an oligarchy. Therefore, the oligarchy could not be. We'll send you to Congress, and it will be all right, they told him at one of our secret meetings. And when they take me out of Congress, Ernest replied coldly, and put me against a wall and blow my brains out, what then? Oh, he's so dramatic. They will rise in our might, a dozen voices answered at once. Then you'll welter in your gore, was his retort. I've heard that song sung by the middle class, and where is it now in its might? Oh, oh my gosh, we actually got to some story. I knew it. I knew it was going to pay off. If we just stuck out nine chapters of Ernest talking at people, that eventually we'd get to some real story. I've seen the cover of this book. Well, multiple covers. The one I keep pushing like a weirdo on uh, Instagram, uh, which has just got like a weird block print of a boot on some sort of sign. Uh, and then another with a dead bird lying on its back. That's kind of weird. I'm wondering how that ties into the story. But the other one that came from me trying to post a, a quote up on Twitter from my Kindle, uh, it attached this cover of a man standing on a hill against a setting sun or burning fields. I don't know. Holding a woman or a child while another woman lays in the dirt down below reaching out to him. Uh... Seems pretty dramatic for a, a book that's just been about one guy talking. So I figured this something's got to happen, and I'm glad it finally did. Chapter 10 is where everything turned around. So now we have 14 more chapters, or hopefully it'll be just as actually sh uh, story-driven. <sighs> what did we learn? We learned that this chapter is better than the last chapter. 
We learn that Ernest might actually get a job as a senator, which, you know, maybe it was good that he held out and didn't take the first job offered to him. Uh, of course, he gets crabby about it and talks about getting taken outside and shot, but that's Ernest, as we know. And he's never wrong. So, we learn that there's a group of people hired by the government to go out and mess things up. Uh, scrapping and yelling. And that is the Black Hundreds. And I guess they really call themselves that. Uh, and with a name like the Black Hundreds, would preachers at the pulpit really get up and talk about how they're true patriots? Uh, such a creepy name. But apparently, that's what you get. So there you go. Uh, crazy things are happening with the middle class. Battles are going on between the oligarchs and the socialists. So... Hopefully the next chapter will be just as sweet. And I hope that you will join me for it. And that you've enjoyed this as much as I have. <laughs>